As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. A new season, but still the same old problems. David Ornstein, Adam Crafton and Laurie Whitwell are with us for the start of this pod. Uh, And just to be clear, you are not the problem. (laughs) I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. March finds a way through. Brooks is there again and scores again. Pascal Gross has started this season on fire and is blowing Manchester United away. Those Brighton fans ecstatic, they've never ever won at Old Trafford against Manchester United, but the glum expression of the new United boss says it all from their perspective. Right, let's crack on then. Uh, The first weekend sees Eric Ten Hag lose his first game as Manchester United manager to Brighton. Adam Crafton and our United writer Laurie Whitwell are with us. Laurie was at the game. Here we go again. You're loving this, aren't you, Chappers? You've missed these Mondays. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I, I, I live for a I live for a cynical, miserable Monday morning talking about United. I mean, it's pretty bad this one, though, isn't it? I mean, opening day of the season, there was expectation in the air, but I hope you could sense the people around Old Trafford. The sun was out. We're kind of walking to the stadium, you know, kind of with a bit of a bounce in the step. The atmosphere felt good. Had a kickoff, and then the action started. You know, it was it was it was kind of a bright start. Eric Ten Hag thought it was it was okay. Uh, I certainly thought the kind of movement up top was was interesting. And then Brighton started to play. United conceded. Confidence went down again at this place. You know, Brighton scored again, and you could just see they were a much better constructed team. Knew their roles, had a purpose about them. Um, and it's getting to desperate situation really for United because you're looking at the kind of signings that they're now trying to approach. It's getting that sort of frantic feel to it. Um, and clearly, Ten Hag needs reinforcements I keep laughing when I talk about who United are trying to sign at the moment I need to stop it but I just can't help myself right before we go on to their supposed transfer targets at the moment uh, which, which side of the fence are you here Adam in that yesterday or the game against Brighton shouldn't really surprise anybody to do with United because in the main it was the same players so you're going to see exactly the same you're going to see exactly the same issues that's one way of looking at it the other way of looking at it is, were you expecting to see more evidence of Ten Hag's work after the summer? 
they're the two sides, aren't they? Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually glad we're sort of doing a little bit on the game before we get into the, these really broad subjects of recruitment and ownership and all that kind of thing that we always end up talking about with Man United. I thought Eric Ten Hag had a terrible day from a selection point of view and a substitution point of view. And I say that as someone who's been, you know, from everything I've read from, you know, Laurie and the guys out on tour and interviews I've seen with him, I've been really quite charmed by him. I like what he's trying to do. I thought yesterday the idea of putting Ericsson as almost, I mean, it was said as a false nine, but he was almost being asked to be a high-pressing number nine at certain times in that first half. It was ridiculous. I've never seen Christian Eriksen play there for Tottenham or for Inter Milan. Maybe he has for Denmark in some games, I'm not sure, but it seemed like a ridiculous call. I think from sort of just having the chat with Laurie last night, he said one of the reasons for that was that he wanted to keep Fernandes and Sancho and Rashford in the same positions as they'd been in pre-season. But that doesn't change the fact that they'd had someone in front of them that was making that work within, in the form of Martial. So I thought that was a really big mistake that he got wrong. And it was a big call because of who he left out in Ronaldo. And then the thing I still can't get my head around is he made a triple substitution on 90 minutes to try and influence the game from an attacking point of view. And it was as if, it was as if United were time-wasting because all it did was sort of break up the game further. And I think if you're going to bring on someone like a Garnacho who's a teenager, very raw, I think you've got to give them 25, 30 minutes to get into the game, to have an impact, to flick the crowd at a point where they probably needed a little bit more ignition in that last 20 minutes. Ten Hag had a poor day, but that doesn't change the fact, you know, we've seen this performance from Man United quite a lot over the last couple of years. We know all the flaws, we know the recruitment's wrong, but I also don't think Ten Hag should completely get off, you know, with, without any criticism yesterday. Laurie? You can um, scrutinise what he did because they lost the game and, you know, you've got a manager on the opposite side who had his team functioning well, obviously the caveat being that he's been there three years and the recruitment has been <laughs> right at Brighton, um, as you can see. Oh, where that his two best players? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he reorganised, didn't he? I mean, he, he, what Tenag said, and, and I think Potter kind of accepted this, is that they did change their tactics a little bit. So you had Danny Welbeck, who, by the way, is a player that Lou Van Gaal got rid of, you know, years ago, coming to Old Trafford and showing what a centre-forward can do. Now that he's clear of his injuries, it seems like. But they went long rather than play out from the back so Ten Hag said that was a, a change for them uh, and the fact that you know Ericsson perhaps therefore didn't actually need to do as much as the, of that high pressing as I think we saw initially um, he, I mean Ten Hag said that the passing into the, the number nine you know whoever it was at that point because I think sometimes Bruno Fernandes was up there wasn't good enough and that he said he thought that was more of an issue rather than the fact that he, he chose Ericsson I mean just a, a small very minor uh, addition on that he said that he played up to, up front for Ajax back in his youth days. So that was perhaps, <laughs> and I can see you shaking your head. But that was the uh, that was part of the uh, thinking. I mean, I, I thought you know ahead of the game maybe Anthony Alanga could do that role. He's played there for the youth sides at United. You know, he clearly would run in behind. You know, it, it didn't work, did it? And I mean, I guess he's thinking with that triple substitution at the end. You know, just 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 mix it up, just just throw a few players on. But it didn't really seem like there was a great deal of, of of you know thought to it. Again, I would say though that if you're having to play Christian Eriksen as your number nine because you've got Anthony Marshall injured, who was a player that United were going to sell at the start of the summer, or at least that was the idea, I suppose. Because he's injured, it's all you know, it's, it's a disaster, and oh, you've got to play a number nine. It's it's crazy that they're in this situation again. And, you know, having come into it, saying that they've changed the recruitment policy, change, you know, saying that they've backed their manager, it's basically been Ten Hag's picks throughout the whole summer. I mean, that just betrays a lack of confidence in the system, the personnel making the decisions or the personnel scouting these players. 
if it just befalls to Eric Ten Hag to say, OK, I'll have this player. And he obviously they've backed him in the sense that they've brought players that he wants in. But there needs to be a wider support there for to, you know, throw some ideas at him and then he can go, OK, yeah, I like that, the sound of that. that. That sounds good. Let's pursue that. So I would I would just sort of counter his substitutions on a basis of the fact that that's all he had. As, as you know, what else could he do? I mean, to, to actually put on Alejandro Garnacho again, very exciting player. The fans are are, uh, are obviously engaged in him, but he's he's so young and he, he you know he was he wasn't even you know that FA Youth Cup team that won last season at the start of the last season. It wasn't like he was their star player that you know they were absolutely certain was going to make it. it. You know, it kind of developed as the as the competition went on. So you can't now hang your hat on him to come on and, and do something. So I think that was an indictment of the squad that he's got, those substitutions at the end. But it's all right now, Laurie, isn't it? Because Marco Anatovic might ride to the uh, rescue alongside Adrian Rabio. I mean, I don't know if you want to start with Anatovic because that, that follows on from your point about them looking at players who have either worked with Ten Hag or have been in the Dutch system. Yeah, so this is an FC20, you know, uh, player that, that, that Eric Ten Hag had and Steve McLaren, I think, at the same time. So they, they know him. They've obviously thought, well, you know, we know his character and the kind of abilities that he has, I suppose. He's, he's obviously a big presence at a place. Um, but he's 33. He's played two years in China before going to Bologna. Okay, he scored, you know, 14 goals in Serie A, but I don't necessarily think that scoring loads of goals in Serie A is a a sign that he will work over here, as we saw with Romelu Lukaku and clearly with Cristiano Ronaldo, there's issues there in terms of harmony, I suppose. So you kind of bring in a player in or you're trying to bring a player in that, you know, is this... This We talk about confidence at Old Trafford and clearly he's got that confidence, but you know, at what cost? You know, I was speaking to people last night who, who know him from uh, Stoke, for example, and they were just saying it was all about him. So, you know, how do you really want that to add into the mix? Even, even regardless of the fact that he's 33, you don't actually know for sure he's going to score these goals. But also, Laurie, I mean, we, we can talk about this Steve McLaren, Ten Hag, 20 connection. Do you know when, when they were at 20, Steve McLaren? Well, yeah, it was it was 2009, 10, wasn't it? Yeah, and then it was back in sort of 2012, 13. We were talking like a decade ago that they're basing, this is what Marco Arnautovic can do for us. In the same way as Ericsson can do this job for me because he did it. 15 years ago in the Ajax youth team. I really I don't want I don't want to go over the top today. But <laughs> but 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 if you just look at Man United were interviewing for that that managerial position what March April they were they announced Ten Hag the end of April. There must have been a discussion around then saying these are the key positions we need, these are some of the players we'd like. So even if you say in that conversation maybe they had a discussion about Lissandro Martinez, for example, mm. as a player that Ten Hag knows really well that you would think wouldn't be that difficult to get because of that. But United almost waited until Arsenal were in for him and then probably had to pay even more as mm. a result of that. That might be a simplification, but it, it's completely baffling to me that given they knew from March, April, who the manager was going to be, what that manager would want, that you can start the season without... Any of the key positions, as far as I can see them, right back, central midfield, right winger, striker, being improved. And even if you go back even further, you know, obviously the, the, the new Cavani was going to be leaving. There's the ongoing situation around Mason Greenwood. Marcus Rashford barely scored a goal for a year. Jaden Sancho struggled. Like It was obvious they needed a striker, mm. even beyond whether Ronaldo stayed or not. And then you've got this, I also can't understand how they misread the Ronaldo situation so badly. 
Was it Ronaldo misleading the club at the end of the season? Did they not have a sufficiently honest conversation? Did anyone sit down with Cristiano Ronaldo, your highest earner, at the end of the season and just say, look, this is what the situation is. Can you tell us categorically what you want to do? Is there anyone at that club who has the ability to do that with a personality as big as Ronaldo? I I don't know anymore. So yeah, not going over the top, but uh, all all happy really. <laughs> and and I'm sorry, just before I finish, Adrian Rab- Adrian Rabio, a player who PSG have indulged a lot of uh, high maintenance players over the years. Even they became tired of him, and I think particularly uh, his mum, who was his agent for a while, could be pretty vocal, pretty demanding. She's actually got a really interesting backstory, which we'll probably go into if if that if they do sign. It's it's not as straightforward as it seems seems you know in terms of an intrusive mum you know really complicated lives but you know PSG thought that was too much hassle and for PSG to think something is too much hassle should be a bit of a red flag. Rabio is not without his baggage and also he's at Juventus where basically they've signed Paul Pogba to replace him a player that obviously United you know let go or, or you know weren't able to keep up where there seems so much as you say, Adam, a lack of uh, direction and clarity over these situations that just seems to drift along and, and kind of happen to United rather than United being the uh, the agent in, in the story. I actually feel quite sorry for certain people at the club whose, you know, whose job it is at times, you know, even if someone like Richard Arnold who went to the pub, right, with those fans at the start of the summer and said, you know, we've got a plan and we only want to get the right players. And there's a lot of people at the club who are working really hard you know, to convey that message, right? That there's a new structure at the club. John Merce is the football director. They'll only go and get the right players out there. There's a real plan. And that's just completely undermined when you, as soon as you lose a game, I know it came out just before the game, but the idea that all of a sudden Marco Arnautovic was on some list from the start of the summer and therefore they're trying to do it. And Rabio, someone that nobody else really wants, is someone that they're looking at as a serious midfield solution. So I feel quite sorry, actually, for some people at the club who are working really hard to try and reboot the way United are perceived. And then things like that happen, which makes it very hard to take seriously. But do, and, and that's my point. I'd follow on from that, Adam, to, to you, Laurie, and go, does anybody at the club think, do you know what, this, this is, this is going to make us look ridiculous if, 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 if we do this or if this comes out or we go for this, if we go for this player? I mean, do, do you think there's anybody there going... Hang on a minute. Hang on. For sure there is. There's definitely people that are looking at that going, this is going to be really awkward, really difficult to convey why we want him to the fans. Um, I think it basically betrays, as I said earlier, a kind of lack of confidence in the people that you've supposedly employed to make these recruitment decisions. So you've got, you know, John Murta is the football director. You've got um, Steve Brown, who's the head of recruitment, who, who Murta brought in, you know, but where are these proposals from from these guys that you know they've got a massive database of players? It feels like United often scout players repeatedly, but never make a decision on them until the manager comes in and says, "Right, I'll have this player, I'll have player that player." So in a way, they are backing the manager, but on the flip side, they're also not because the structure around the manager, who you know we've got Ten Hag, who's very much on the grass as a coach, wants to get players and improve them. He can't be thinking about. You know, can't be scouting all these players himself, can he? He needs to have support from a, a kind of elite, you know, uh, streamlined team. When you look at the players that Man City buy, you know, sometimes it's it's a, a dialogue between their recruitment staff and Pep Guardiola as to who they should go for, and, and he kind of, you know, it's, it's an honest com- conversation. It feels like the the balance of power is very much 
well, it's up to the manager. We'll, we'll, we'll let him decide. And, and that can't be right at a big club like Manchester United. It has to be that you've got other people that have got equally strong football opinions that can back themselves and say, no, this is a good signing for us. And it feels like it's, it's, it's it just, you know, like I say, things happen to United rather than United taking control of situations. And they will be able to say that they've scouted these players and they've, you know, seen them live, I'm, I'm sure, because they have, I say, they have, Reports on various players, you know, thousands of players. They, they, they had reports on Alex Ellis when he came in, um, you know, two years ago. But ultimately, that deal was done. Still got a database of 800 right-backs, let's not forget. Well, there we, so. well, there we go. But, Which they now yeah. accept was, was, was kind of wrong to trumpet at the time. But that was Ed Woodward. That was, that was Ed Woodward wanting to kind of put out there that they'd got this massive database and Aaron Wambasaka was the chosen one out of all of it. Um, but when you drill down into it, it's ultimately deals that are possible, deals that agents have proposed, you know, that was the situation with Alex Tellis, for example, and now, you know, he's gone off to Sevilla for a free uh, loan. You know, no no, no income is coming from that transfer. Where you look at Liverpool, they sell Nico Williams for £17 million. They can top up the, the budget. You know, it's, there's so many instances of United just sort of not doing business correctly and, and not acting sharply and not acting quickly. And you, you hear further stories um, and it, it doesn't fill you with hope that this will change anytime soon. I think the problem as well, Laurie, is if, if you watch the game yesterday, it was difficult actually to look at any part of the pitch and say United are the best they could be in that position right now. I don't want to go through each and every player's flaws, but they're really what you know. You're looking at the defence, and Brighton went direct because they basically thought Harry Maguire couldn't cope with the ball in behind, and Martinez might be exposed on his debut, and they were proven right. You know, it's not. Tell, we'll talk about Graham Potter doing a really good job. All really true, but like, this wasn't rocket science. It was knocking him behind for someone who's quite quick, right? And United couldn't deal with that. And it was play passes in behind the two guys that overcommit in central midfield as they have done for the past two years. The fullback positions still look really questionable. Ten Hag's basically taking a huge gamble that Sancho and Rashford are going to go to the levels that we imagine them to be rather than what the evidence says they've been for the past year. And yesterday we saw something else. You know, Bruno Fernandes as well looks like the player he was last season. So you're looking all around that team and you're like, if I'm building something... What am I building around? Probably the most damaging thing for United is there's still about three and a half weeks of the transfer window left. So if they're acting like this after the first game, what's it going to be like after Liverpool at home in two weeks' time? That's a positive way for Adam to end it, Laurie. So uh, <laughs> we'll let you go on that note. It's going to, can't wait to talk to you throughout the course of the season. <laughs> oh, it's going to be in my four, diary. Four times a week. Yeah. Four times four a week. Four times. Well, I'm not going to have you on every single pod. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Plus, plus I mean, the good thing for you... Laurie, is that United making a pig's ear of it is good for your burgeoning media career, isn't it? So you're going to be, you're going to be on telly a, a lot more. And one of the reasons we have to let you go on the pod now is because you're off to... MUTV. We'll, we'll see if uh, what I say on there gets aired, unless it gets canned like Roy Keane style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your first answer. Yeah, plenty of positives. A lot, lot to work on, obviously, but there were there were positives. Oh, and and by the way, and Atovic and Rabia, good good signings, good targets. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Thanks, guys. See you later. See you soon. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Well, David Ornstein uh, joins us now to talk more about the, at least one of those transfers that we've just mentioned, and also to talk Frank and De Jong. Before we get to De Jong, Rabio, what do you understand? Yeah, so we broke the news this morning on The Athletic that Manchester United are working on a deal to sign Adrien Rabio. Um, now, this is a player who hadn't really been linked with United, but I understand that he is... Uh, a leading target of theirs for central midfield. And it's not a knee-jerk reaction to the weekend's result. This is something that's been brewing for a while. We just... <laughs> so, you Sorry, can be David. the cynic. I'll, I'll refrain. But um... sometimes, I just have to, sometimes I just have to react. Sorry. So, yeah, despite the timing of our story, this is something United, I think, have been working on for a bit of time. It just happened that we reported it this morning and Rabio is uh, among a number of candidates that United have been considering maybe as alternatives if they don't end up getting Frankie Dion maybe additionally um, and he has risen to become a leading target of theirs as I understand it of course they'll need to reach an agreement with Juventus which I think is um, not the most difficult part of this because he's only got a year to go on his contract but they'll also need to agree uh, a deal with the player. And what United need to decide now is whether they plough on with this potential signing irrespective of their ongoing pursuit of Frankie de Jong, which is ongoing, or whether they wait until learning the outcome of the de Jong situation before pulling the trigger on Rabiot or anybody else. I suspect from the sort of noises I've got around this situation that they might look to do this additionally to whatever might happen or not with De Jong. And it's an active one right now and it's quite fast moving, which is quite different to De Jong. What's going on with De Jong then? Because you've got a, an update on that in your column as well. Yeah, we've broken a big story on The Athletic in relation to De Jong. There's obviously been 
standoff between Barcelona and himself. Barcelona have deep financial problems. Adam was part of a fantastic in-depth piece on The Athletic, which people can go out and read uh, on that subject. One of their solutions to their financial problems is getting rid of uh, players and they probably probably can't get a much bigger transfer fee uh, than they can for De Jong. Uh, the problem is they also owe him a significant amount of deferred wages. They've been trying to uh, convince him to reduce his salary. Um, it's been well documented that he uh, hasn't agreed to that. And we uh, have been met, made aware through sources in Spain that on the 15th of July, Barcelona wrote a letter sent to Frankie de Jong, informing him that they believe they have evidence of criminality around the signing of his most recent contract in October uh, of 2020, which, of course, extended his stay by two years from the original deal he signed in 2019 when he joined from Ajax. But it also put in place this salary deferral and structure. Barcelona are telling him that we feel we have sufficient evidence to uh, take legal action um, to establish exactly what happened around the signing of that contract and where the responsibility lies for the alleged criminality. They then say that they have the will to annul his existing contract and that he should return to the terms that he signed when joining from Ajax in January 2019. There has been some subsequent communication between the two parties, as I understand it, where Barcelona lay the blame very squarely at the previous board, led by Josep Bartomeu, um, as opposed to the current president, Juan Laporta. But they warned that despite the blame being in their eyes for this so-called criminality with the previous board, that the player and his representatives could be implicated in that criminality because they were part of and privy to that signing, of course, of their contract. Uh, we've approached Frankie de Jong's representatives for a comment and we understand that the previous board of directors led by Bartomeu um, insist there is no wrongdoing whatsoever and um, have... Uh, claimed that there is nothing for them to answer to and the contracts that were signed, not only his, there were other deals announced on the same day as his uh, for Gerard Piquet, Marc-Andre Testegen and Clement Longley. The previous board say that they are all legally sound and were approved by La Liga. So this uh, mess rumbles on. Uh, meanwhile, Frankie de Jong's priority is to stay at Barcelona. That remains the case as we speak. It could change technically. If it does change, Manchester United remain extremely keen. They want to sign him and build around him. They've agreed to deal with Barcelona, but they haven't agreed anything on the player side. And Chelsea very keen on signing him as well. They have not reached an agreement with Barcelona. It's been more conversational to this point, but the uh, understanding I have is that Chelsea are willing to not only agree a deal with Barcelona, but also separately pay off the deferred salary owed to Frankie de Jong to bring him to the club. And of course, they offer Champions League football, which Manchester United don't at the moment, although they'll hope to get back there. But it's not clear at this stage 
where Frankie de Jong would definitely like to go if he leaves Barcelona. I think what we've known all summer is that obviously Barcelona needs to bring in a lot of money this summer. That's why they've been selling off assets within the club. So that's you know percentage of future television rights, percentage of Barca studios. And then what we also saw over the weekend was La Liga basically saying it's still not enough, even though they've brought in something like 600 million euros this summer in terms of a cash injection by making those sales. What we've also known all along is they need players to leave and they need some players who are still at the club to reduce wages. So that's been players like Gerard Piquet, Sergio Busquets over the past week have been asked to consider further reductions. Piquet, for example, last summer was asked to reduce his wages um, so they could register Memphis Depay. And Memphis Depay is now deemed to be disposable as well. So you could understand Gerard Piquet being a bit hesitant about you know, reducing his wages again to let some more signings register um, if they don't turn out to be particularly good. On De Jong, I mean, it's been the story of the summer, right? He's the, he's the player that they identified as having the most, you know, the most resale value um, in the squad. And there's been a clear, there's been a clear desire to move him on and the willing suitors. What they found the problem is that the player has a contract and the player has a right, you know, to remain true to that contract. And you can't force players to reduce their wages and you can't force players to leave the club in the middle of their contracts. But what this letter shows is that Barcelona don't seem to think that the contract that Frenkie de Jong is staying true to or wants to stay true to is worth quite what he believes it's worth. And that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what FIFPRO, the Global Players Union, have to say about this, what the Spanish PFA equivalent have to say about this. It's pretty dark and sinister, to be honest. You know, it's, it feels like, you know, we talk about alleged criminality it's, uh, and sort of letters that have gone out. And all while this has been going on, you've had people like Juan Laporta, the president of Barcelona, saying how much Barcelona love Frankie and they want him to stay at the club and they just need Frankie to do his bit to stay at the club, i.e. reduce his wages. It's, I think it's been a really unpleasant summer from that perspective. Yeah, I'm really pleased Adam mentioned that because one of the strands of this is that the uh, chairman of the Dutch Players Union um, has talked in recent weeks about potential extortion going on here. Um, and this report would appear to tally with that notion. It's a notion that Laporta has denied publicly, but we understand that FIFPRO are watching this situation very closely. And we have offered, of course, a right of reply to Barcelona and the current regime, but um, they declined to comment on the story and situation. David, thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Kelly. You can join me, Jack Pitt-Brook, and the rest of the Athletics, frankly, tremendous team of Tottenham writers twice a week throughout the new season for the View from the Lane podcast. It's the podcast that gives you everything you need to know about Spurs, as well as all the joy and pain of actually following them. Search for the View from the Lane everywhere you get your podcasts and listen ad-free on The Athletic. Well, every season starts with the dreams. The dreams of hope and glory, step by step, he will take it. And Bournemouth's spirit and fight on their return to the top flight, far too much for a disappointing Aston Villa. Bournemouth 2, Villa 0.
Let's move on to Villa, then beaten at Bournemouth at the weekend. Greg Evans covers the Villa beat for us and joins us now. What happened? It was a very, very unexpected result, really. I thought Villa had had such a, a good pre-season and everything leading up to it, um, I, I just thought they'd do so well and they'd go, in, they'd go and see off Bournemouth. But it didn't go to plan. The early goal, I think, really really made it hard for them. And they just struggled to break down a team that probably got a little bit of momentum from, from coming up. Um, and just really wanted it a little bit more than Villa. The Athletics' very own Alan Shearer was telling me over the weekend that um, the first four or five games to play promoted sides is, uh, he always used to hate it. He said it's different when you meet them in those first four or five games. Can you use that as any kind of mitigating factor? A little bit. I mean, it's the it's the second year in a row that, that Villa have faced a, a newly promoted team on the opening day of the season and lost. Um, I, I thought it couldn't have got much worse than when they lost to Watford last year. But, you know, the, the actual result here at Bournemouth was, was, was arguably worse because Villa had had a great pre-season, you know, they'd gone five games and beat and they'd got the signings in early, a little bit of time for them to settle in and, and get used to the new surroundings. Mm-hmm. And you just thought that they'd go there and do a professional job and get a result. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to argue with Alan Shearer if he says it's harder to play against <laughs> newly promoted oh, teams. No, no, there. no, no, no. It's quite <laughs> no, good no. fun arguing with Alan Shearer. I, I think find, he knows a bit more about you. playing uh, football teams than I do. So we'll, we'll get we'll go. With well, that you say that, Greg. You say that. Um, the thing is, I, I suppose there is there are two. I don't know whether there are two warning signs here or whether this is a bit like going over the top as Adam did earlier when uh, when talking about Ten Hag and United, but. Villa didn't end last season particularly well. So is that a concern? And then also, there's no Michael Beale anymore as he's gone to, to take over QPR. But is that, is that going overboard a bit? I find it really hard to, to criticise and judge a team after one game of the season. But you're right to look back at the back end of last season. because well, it, You're on the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the. I don't know if you've seen the, the social media sort of reaction to, to Villa's defeat. I mean, it, it, it's really surprised me actually. They really have gone into them, the supporters. I didn't expect it to be this bad, but look, a defeat to defeat. We, you know, we have to analyse it as it is. I think if you look back to the back end of last season, yeah, Villa won two games in the last 11 of, of, of the previous season. Um, if you roll that into this season, that's two wins out of 12. Those two wins are against Norwich and Burnley, who are both in the Championship now. So it doesn't read that well, but I do think that Villa have got the right players there now. I think they've got a good team, a good squad, um, and that they'll turn it around. But there's, there's no doubting that the pressure already is ongoing into that first game of the season at Villa Park on Saturday. Because, Adam, you go, you go back to June... And everybody was raving about the business that they'd done in June. I mean, they they went off early, did did Villa. Yeah, they did. Was it um, Diego Cardos from Sevilla, Camera, was it Marseille, Greg, that he came from? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think people were excited. I think the reason for the extremes maybe in the reaction, actually both with United and Villa, is those two clubs have kind of given their fans a little bit of optimism this summer. So then you feel a little bit psychologically slightly deceived and cheated, don't you, when that doesn't turn out to be the way that you imagine it's going to be on the first day of the season with quite a, with quite a kind-looking fixture. It's like Gerard being there, but you kind of just expected a bit more. It's been a bit, it's been a bit meh so far from, from, from Gerard at Villa. But look, it's, I mean, it's one game. 
you know, what's the, ex- the aim for Villa this season is probably, you know, a decent top 10 finish. There's no reason why you can't do that after losing one game against Bournemouth. And then the final thing, I suppose, Greg, that might just add to the sense of it being a bit flat this last week, along with along with that result, is losing one of their bright young stars. Yeah, I think he, he always kind of felt like this one was on the cards and, and that, that Carney Chutwamaker wanted to explore his options and, and try, try something else. Um, you know, Barcelona and AC Milan showed very strong interest, you know, in this young 18-year-old. They both wanted to sign him, but were not prepared to pay the fee that, that Villa wanted. Chelsea came up with, you know, with the funds, £20 million, and, and that was enough to get the deal done. I, it surprised me, I have to admit. I think if you're a young player and you want to see a pathway uh, into the first team, moving to Chelsea, you know, he's, he's, he's not going to get many games there, are you? When you've got Mason Mount, Kai Havertz, Conor Gallagher, um, a host of other players in front of you. It's going to be a really difficult pathway for him. Villa were prepared to offer that. You know, they offered him a very, very good deal. Um, they want they were prepared to make him the highest paid teenager in in the country, um, the highest paid teenager ever at that club. And and they were offering that pathway into the first team. You know, I don't knock him for for thinking that perhaps he can get a better move, can get a better financial deal. Um, and and if he believes he can get that pathway into the first team at Chelsea, then fair play, good luck to him. He's a great player and and he's got a lot of potential. But it did surprise me, um, and Villa are a little bit wounded by it. By the way, finally, if you if you think this Monday could be doom and gloom and overreacting, I have just looked at next weekend's fixtures, and it's Villa Everton next Saturday lunchtime. So hellfire! It will either be you, Greg, or one of the Everton boys <laughs> on on Monday because one club is is going to have had a miserable start to the season. I think we're going to hear a lot about Gerard versus Lampard again, aren't we? This yeah. week, and uh, it will be interesting <laughs> to see who comes out of that battle on top again. Um, but yeah, look, it's, it's a big game for both of them. It's mad that we're describing it as such a big game, two games into two okay. weeks into the season. But that's football, yeah. and that's why we love it, isn't it? Is there a long read planned, Adam, on on the Gerard Lampard history over the years? There must be. No, it's quite a good idea, though. Do you fancy doing it? Uh, no, four podcasts a week is enough. I don't want to start <laughs> writing 90,000-word articles as well. Uh, but you can take it take it to a planning meeting and then somebody can do it. And apologies sure. if I've landed that on you, Greg, if it comes your way. But there we go. Well, it was my own fault for bringing it up, wasn't it? But let's hope our editors aren't listening. <laughs> uh, thanks good on, Greg. See you soon. Good stuff, Adam. See you soon. Brilliant. Cheers. See you soon. And for all the latest on all the stories we've discussed today, including our live transfer blog and Alan Shearer in conversation with Erling Haaland, just head to The Athletic where you can subscribe for a pound a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. The Athletic.